Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is now episode 7, God's Sabbath Rest. And I'd like to look at the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2 to talk a little bit about what I think it means for God to rest on the Sabbath. And the Bible will have plenty to say about the Sabbath from this point going forward. But the best way for us to understand what exactly this means Um, why God chooses to rest, how God's rest is related to our rest, um, and ultimately how we come to understand the purpose for the many Sabbath commandments given in Scripture, the way we come to understand why Jesus and the religious leaders had such differing views of what keeping the Sabbath holy actually meant, and and on and on. And so there are a, a, a number of themes that surface from the very idea of rest, but this this one probably more than many of the others is one of the main reasons why in an attempt to unbind the Bible, we really do have to go all the way back to the beginning and ask maybe different questions, maybe just new questions, questions that that you may have never asked before, questions that I certainly didn't ask until just a number of years ago, but realizing that in the way the Bible tells its own story, it addresses answers to questions we might not be asking, and sometimes it doesn't even ask questions. It simply presents us with information, and what we will see in the first three verses of Genesis 2 um, are maybe the beginnings of some of those those answers to those questions, and I would like to pose some new ones. I'm going to flip through a handful of passages today um, just to show you some of the unfolding nature of the Sabbath and what I think it means for us. So again, if you're listening in, you can just follow along. If you have a Bible handy and that's convenient for you and you want to see these things for yourself, I'll be flipping through my own Bible um, as we're doing this. So let me just start by reading the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. And then I want to point out a few things um, from the passage itself. So here's what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now one one thing I do want to point out is that, that you know it's it's unfortunate in in our Bibles that we have chapter breaks where we do because it almost makes it look like creation happened on in chapter one and then you have this large bold number two which breaks up the flow of the narrative but in in the actual way this story was told these chapter breaks weren't actually here in the original Hebrew those have been added and for good reason Um, once the Bible became widespread and many people had copies of the Bible it's very it makes perfect sense to separate out chapters and verses so that people can reference them across, um, well, even in a church. For instance, a, a pastor is preaching and his congregation members have Bibles, but but even across states or across countries or across time, it's just much easier when you are referencing um, a portion of the Bible, you reference it according to book, chapter, and verse. But the reason I bring that up is because in chapter 2, the first three verses, we talk about God's rest. And it might be tempting because of the chapter break 
to sort of look at the rest of God as something detached from the creation, um, but it really isn't. In fact, it's one of the high points of creation. It's it's ultimately the goal toward which creation was aimed, and you can pick that up when you recognize the way that 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 we're told this by the author. Um, we we see that the heavens and the earth were finished. Okay, now this is chapter um, chapter two, verse one, but this is bringing our attention right back to chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, now the creation of those things is finished. And what does that mean? It means you close your book and walk away. No, it actually is introducing now God himself being able to sit and to relax and to enjoy a perfect creation functioning exactly as it was supposed to, which is really helpful because if you look at chapter 1 of Genesis, there are numerous times where God refers to his actions as seeing something and labeling it good. So God sees the light and saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good at the end of day, um, at the end of day three, and then God saw that it was good, and then God saw that it was good, and then God saw that it was good, and at the very end of Genesis one, we're told that God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And so there is this point at which God see something, he says something, he does something, and then he labels it as good. And so this idea of rest is not exactly like it is for you and for me. We, we might go out and mow the lawn on a hot September day, which I did just this past weekend, or I might go and clean up the debris from my yard, which I did um, after a hurricane blew a whole bunch of pine straw and hundreds and hundreds of pine cones into my backyard, littering it with that debris. And so my boys and I spent a few hours on a Saturday raking it all up, piling it into wheelbarrows and wheeling it to the front of the house. But I I live in North Carolina and it was 86 degrees on that Saturday while I was working and we were sweating tremendously. It's tiring. It's hot. You go in, you want a glass of water, you go take a shower and you just want to sit down on the couch and do nothing. You want to rest. And in our minds, we don't mean to do it this way, but we naturally think that rest equals the lack of work or rest equals I'm tired from my work and so I want to put my feet up and I want to do nothing. I want to detach. I want to mindlessly scroll through my phone and not have to do any thinking or anything that requires any type of work. But that's not exactly what it means for God to rest because as we're going to find out as we go – God resting, God, God doesn't get tired. Um, he is not, he's not like a man who slumbers or sleeps. We're told this in Psalm 121. And so we don't have these ideas where we get wiped out at the end of a long day and decide that we need to go take a nap or we need to go to bed early or we need to turn our alarm off so that we can sleep in. Instead, the idea is on the heels of these repeated references of God labeling his creation good And then after the creation of mankind and him putting mankind in his place to rule the world, as we talked about two episodes ago, made in his image, he now looks at this perfectly functioning creation, poised and ready to flourish exactly as God intended. Everything has its place. Every part of it knows its role. Mankind made in God's image are now commissioned to rule this world 
on God's behalf. Everything is provided for them. And God sits back and says, yes, this is exactly what I intended things to be. There's a deep sense of satisfaction, a deep sense of a job well done, a deep sense in which this is a creation functioning exactly as it was supposed to. Now I am simply going to enjoy it. Now this is a slightly different idea than what we have when we maybe think of, I want to go take a nap or I want to put my feet up and not think about anything. But we, as human beings made in God's image, also experience this type of idea when it comes to rest. And we experience it most clearly when after we have spent all afternoon with our boys raking up the pine straw and the hundreds of pine cones and wheeling them into the front yard, we clear the yard and then we both, um, the three of us actually, we did the weed eater and we mowed it and it looks beautiful, it's ordered, it's green, it's lush and I won't deny or won't pretend that I didn't take at least 20 minutes over the next four or five hours to repeatedly walk by the kitchen window and glance out into the backyard to appreciate the work that the three of us had done to make that yard look exactly as it was supposed to. One of the reasons I love the house that we live in is because of the beautiful backyard and after the hurricane, it did not look beautiful. It was, if you will, a bit chaotic kind of like the darkness that once resided over the creation from Genesis 1-2. And when the work was put in properly, there was a strong sense of satisfaction, a strong sense of this is exactly what it's supposed to be. And just observing my backyard was restful. I realized my body kind of aches and I lost a lot of sweat, but that's why I did it. And it makes it worth it. And this is a strong, powerful sense in which God looks at the creation. He sees it working the way that it was supposed to. And he takes delight in that. He takes and experiences actual pleasure in observing a world that is functioning precisely as it should. Sun is rising when it should and setting when it should, providing evening and morning. The stars in the sky create beauty where they are. The trees flourish and grow and provide seed and fruit for mankind, for animals. The fish have their place. The birds have their place. Some are multiplying. Some are filling the earth. And mankind is ruling it as God himself would. Everything is exactly as it's supposed to be. And so God can sit back and he can rest. Once you recognize that the seventh day of creation is really part of the other six days and that it is completing the cycle, it's actually kind of helpful if we compare what we are told and how we are told it um, about the seventh day with the other six days of creation. And so just briefly, I'd like to go back and just point out a couple of things and I'll go ahead and read them for you. But I, I just want to point out the way that Genesis 1 in its 
desire to set a pattern, which um, we will come to find out really quickly in the biblical story that the pattern of the seven-day week, the work for six um, days and rest for one, that is a pattern that is woven into the very um, center of the creation. It's woven into the way that mankind is supposed to live and to rule on the earth. And we will find God being very specific, very direct with what he intends man to do um, by following the same cycle that God himself follows. But there's there's something that's often missed, and, and I only say often missed because I've missed it most of my life. But I, I would like to point out some of that pattern that you see in the first six days of creation and then for us to look again at the first three verses of Genesis to see what we find there. But in verse 5 of Genesis 1, at the very end of the verse, it simply says there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then if you read on down to verse 8, it says, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then again in verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And then if you read on verse 19, it says, And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And verse 23 says, And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And then verse 31 said, There was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And a couple of observations I would like to make about this. And the first is just in the Jewish calendar... If you notice the way you read those passages, it says that there was evening and there was morning the first day. And it's kind of interesting, particularly as we define days in the Western part of the world. We, we sometimes interchange the word day with date. Um, but however we choose to do it, our day, if you will, ends with um, darkness. It ends at midnight when it has been dark, depending on what time of the year you're in. It ends with multiple hours of darkness. And then, of course, the next day starts, the date starts also in the darkness. But in, in the Jewish calendar, the day ended when the day ended. So when the light went away at sundown, the day ended, and that actually began the next day. And so even when we will begin to talk about things like the Sabbath, you know, the Sabbath began at sundown and then it went through sun, sunset, sunrise, all that stuff through the very next day. And so it actually is the opposite, almost the opposite of the way we think about it today. But it began with the nighttime and then it went into the day. And that's actually a pattern itself is things beginning with that, that darkness, just like we saw in Genesis 1-1 or 1-2 and moving toward a time of light. Um, we will pick up these themes later on in the Gospel of John very clearly with Jesus, Jesus himself being the light, him desiring to call people out of the darkness, out of the hiddenness, out of the... Um, sinfulness and the ways in which they live and bringing them into the light, bringing things out to the light. And so as we head from darkness to light, we're moving in a direction of redemption. Even the very way the day is described in Genesis is communicating that. 
starting here with the darkness, which you had at the very beginning, and then God speaking light into these things and having light appear, we are moving with that type of trajectory, which is really, really helpful. It's not necessarily profound. It's just an observation. But if you listen to me read through verse 5 and 8 and 13, 19, 23 and 31, and we just repeat it, it's a it's kind of funny when you read through that and you think, is that a pattern? Well, I would say that that is a pattern. There was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was morning. But what I find really remarkable is that when you come to Genesis 2, 1 through 3, we are speaking about the seventh day. And it says, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And in the creation narrative, that is the end of the description of the seventh day. And as you and I, as good readers of the Bible, come to day seven, we ought to notice something missing. We ought to notice something in a pattern that has been repeated over and over and over and over in just 31 short verses of Genesis 1. It was repeated six times. We ought to notice something that is glaringly absent from day 7. And that is that there is no reference to there being evening and morning the seventh day. And this might puzzle you. Maybe you've never even noticed this, which is also a possibility. I'm not sure what the case is for you, but I think what's actually going on here is pretty stunning. And I think what's actually going on is that there's a whole lot of intentionality behind this. This isn't a, a glitch. This isn't an oversight. It's simply pointing out that unlike day one through six, that has a clear beginning and a clear end, God's seventh day, God's Sabbath day, has no end. He's still experiencing it. His intention and longing is that mankind would be invited to share in his Sabbath rest right along with him forever with absolutely no end in sight. And embedded right here in the creation is that thing made explicitly clear. There is no end. God longs for man to sit back and enjoy the perfect creation exactly as it was intended to be enjoyed right along with him. This has been his desire from the beginning. God is a sharing God. He is not obligated to create. There's nothing about the creation that God is dependent upon for him to feel good about himself or for him to enjoy his own life. He is simply a sharing God who desires to make a world that he can lavish his love and his grace on. He then makes a people that he can give the responsibility of ruling and reigning over this world on his behalf as his stewards, as his image bearers. And he wants them to, in the daily pattern of their own lives, begin as well to experience the satisfaction and the pleasure and the enjoyment of a world functioning exactly as it was intended to. Now, we're told that God finished his work that he had done. 
And that's a really insightful bit of information. Halfway through chapter 2, God will actually give Adam very specific work that he himself is supposed to do. And when we get to that section, we will see some of the same types of things that God did when God worked. And therefore, what he is asking of Adam to do as his image bearer when he places him over a garden to work it and to keep it. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. One passage in particular where it becomes clear that God's rest never ends and that it is in fact something that he is desiring to invite man into is from a passage in Psalm 95. And you you know much of the story. I mean, we, we you know if you are familiar with the Bible at all, and that is that not long after God invited man into his rest, um, mankind chose a different route and lost the freedom and the hope that could have been his and hers enjoying that with God. And along the way in the story, Psalm 95 recaps some of the failure that the people of God made when it came time for them to experience their own rest. And in Psalm 95, I would like to just read a few verses because I think this kind of captures the idea. We're told in verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So right here, you know, our Maker, our Creator. For He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now this is definitely a a, a discouraging passage in terms of people not entering God's rest. But a few things I don't want you to miss is that it is a rest that is experienced by God. It is a rest that he longs to invite his people into. And it is in fact possible post-fall to be rebellious against that rest, fearing what it might involve, what it might cost the people. They are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. And God will repeatedly say, you saw my work. You saw what I did. You saw the works of my hands. You made some of your own works of your hands and ended up worshiping those, thinking that those things were going to bring you rest instead of realizing it's the things that I produce, that I make, that I work toward, that actually provides rest. And I am not telling you to do something in order to get rest. I'm asking you to walk in and to enjoy it with me. But he says to them, I want you to enter my rest, and you simply wouldn't do it. And so the Sabbath rest idea 
is one again where God is inviting man to enjoy the creation, enjoy the works and the fruits of his own labor. Um, This is again why in the fall, much, much difficulty will be made out of man's work because no longer is that satisfaction and enjoyment and pleasure that we get out of our work. That is not going to come quite as easily and quite as naturally as it otherwise could have. God's purpose in having a Sabbath and inviting his people into it is that their lives would also long for the goal of creation, and that is to enter into God's rest, to enjoy it with him, to be there along with God, experiencing true rest, experiencing peace, experiencing shalom with God. Now, this is a noticeable pattern that God not only weaves into creation, but repeatedly with his people, he uses their understanding of the need for rest with him on the Sabbath as sort of a litmus test for how willing or unwilling they are to obey him in general. And if you are at all familiar with the story of Israel, when Israel is redeemed from Egypt, they go out into the wilderness, and before they even arrive at Mount Sinai, they're faced with a problem. They don't have any food. They don't have any water. This is some of the reference that Psalm 95 is alluding to when the people put the Lord to the test, questioning whether he was able to provide food for them when they desperately needed it, questioning whether he was able to provide water for them when they desperately needed it, majorly, majorly misunderstanding if God is here to redeem them, certainly he is going to bring them into a place of rest. That's the goal of creation. That is also the goal of redemption. And so in in Exodus chapter 16, when God decides to provide his people food in the wilderness so that they can experience rest with him, he offers them manna. And he tells the people that for six days they are to go out and they are to gather the manna. Each day for the first five are to gather enough manna for their families for the day. And then they are to eat that manna and it will satisfy them for the day. But because the seventh day is a day of rest and not a day of work, because the seventh day is a Sabbath and is meant to be a day of enjoyment, enjoying one another, enjoying their pres- being in the presence of God, enjoying his provisions, working for them exactly as they should be, then on day six, they are to go out and gather twice as much bread as they need so that they can eat half of it on the sixth day and the other half on the seventh day and will not need to work on that seventh day. If you remember the story, you know that the people do not listen. And maggots begin to grow in the extra bread that the people collect um, or else they don't actually have anything to eat at all on the seventh day because they didn't take God's guidance seriously and decided that they were going to just waltz out on the seventh day and eat more manna. But what what is interesting about it is that this conflict centering around whether they're going to trust God or whether they're going to put him to the test centers around their willingness to trust him 
and to rest and to enjoy him and each other and the creation functioning just as it should on the seventh day. And so when you come to the Ten Commandments, which the first time we get them is in Exodus chapter 20, you have ten commandments. But the fourth commandment is about remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And of all the commandments given in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment by far is the longest and most uh, it gives the most um, explanation behind it. And here's what it says in Exodus 20 verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now I want to also flip ahead to Genesis, or I'm sorry, to Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the Ten Commandments are repeated almost word for word from Exodus chapter 20. But I want to point out in Deuteronomy chapter 5, not, oh great, the Bible just is interested in repeating things. Why on earth would I waste my time? Well, if you're closely reading and you notice that the reason God gives his people in Exodus 20 for trusting him and not working on the seventh day is because God made the world in six days and on the seventh day he chose to rest. Therefore, the reason, the motive for why people should not work on the seventh day, why they should enjoy rest on the seventh day, is rooted in the God behind creation. But it's very interesting that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, that is not the reason given in the Ten Commandments for why Israel should rest on the seventh day. There's a different reason, and it's very significant. And so in Deuteronomy 5, I would also like to read the section on the fourth commandment, the not or, or the uh, to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It is also the longest of all of the commands and the reasons behind it. But here is what it says, starting in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor... And do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now, to this point, it sounds really similar. Maybe a few word changes here and there, but now I want you to listen to verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, that is a very different reason for keeping the Sabbath than it is to focus on the fact that God did so in creation and therefore so should you. What he is saying in Deuteronomy 5 is that the God behind redemption who rescued you 
when you were a slave in Egypt directly affects the way you need to think about how you treat your male servant and your female servant. The idea of rest extends way beyond people. It extends to the land. It extends to your livestock. It extends to your male servants and your female servants, to the sojourner who is within your land who has no rights, quote-unquote, to anything. Sabbath rest is the goal to be enjoyed by all of the creation and for all of the creation. And it is stemming completely from the person of God as both creator and redeemer. Now these themes will continue to surface time and time and time again because we need to know our God both as a creator and as a redeemer. He is to be praised and worshipped for being both. But as the story unfolds, and we'll look at this more later, his interest is in showing us why rooted in who he is as creator and rooted in who he is as redeemer, both are crucial for you and I to grasp, to understand what it means for us to enter into his rest. The importance of entering into God's rest is why in books like Joshua, um, we're told repeatedly that the land had rest from war. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're told that when the Lord had given rest to David and to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, then the Lord came to David and began having a discussion with him about a temple, the first that David wanted to build for God, and then that God said he would build for David. But this theme of rest continues to surface, and there really is no way to fully understand Jesus and what he means by his, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then as you continue to read through the Gospels, you have to be quite surprised and stunned at how often Jesus heals on the day of rest. And the reasons why he does that are significant, and we'll explore some of those in future podcasts. For now, that's all for this week. <music>